last time at the Abrahamic covenant, at the character and nature of it. We haven't yet got to um, the contents of it, um, its ingredients. But first of all, just looking at um, some aspects of its character and nature. And last time we focused upon the covenant with Abraham being a covenant um, of promise. And we studied together um, how, how that the covenant with Abraham was used by the Apostle Paul as a model for the gospel of grace and particularly for justification by faith alone. Um, the progress of God's redemptive plan, which this series is all about really, um, up until now, until we get to Abraham, has been mainly in terms of or instances of individual deliverances from specific judgments. But when we get to the Abrahamic covenant, the program of redemption um, moves to a far more positive um, promise of blessing, not only for the people of God, but for the whole world. So there's an there's a acceleration, in a way, in, the, in God's redemptive plan. When we get to the Abrahamic covenant, there is a, a gear change up um, in God's redemptive plan. And the promises we spoke about last time are contained in the reading that we've just had in Genesis 12, um, one, two, and three. We looked at that. We studied how that these covenantal promises uh, were ratified through a divine oath. So not only was there a promise, was amazing enough, but then God took an oath that He would keep, that He would be the keeper of this covenant. And um, we looked at that very strange and odd to us. Um, covenant ratification ceremony, uh, how Yahweh himself, Jehovah himself, through a, a theophany, walked the path of darkness and dereliction and destruction, which we studied how that was a, a shadow and a type of the, of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from the curse of the, of the broken covenant. Made a curse for us because he hung on a tree. And so tonight we're going to continue to sketch out um, the general character, the general nature of this Abrahamic covenant. Um, and we've established last time that it was a covenant of promise. Um, I said that there were three um, characteristics I wanted to cover. So I think all we're going to do tonight is cover the second one. And the second one is, is, is this, that the, the, this covenant with Abraham is an exercise, really, an exercise of God's sovereignty. Another characteristic of this Abrahamic covenant is God's sovereignty. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. I assume that we all have a basic idea of what God's sovereignty means, but just very briefly, in the Bible, God is um, everywhere presented um, as the sovereign. Uh, this country is, um, has a sovereign king, uh, the one on the throne, so it's easier for, I think, for British people to get a handle on God's sovereignty in some ways. Um, the one on the throne exercising kingly rule over all things. And practically speaking, that means that God controls everything in a way which forwards his plans and his desires. He's on the throne after all. It's God. And it means that his authority, um, his authority means that all his commands must be obeyed and his royal presence is everywhere. Just like the, the writ of the King Charles, whether you like it or not, is everywhere through this kingdom, his writ, his rule. 
is everyone. And in the Bible we're taught how you cannot run from God's control. Um, you can't run from his authority, you can't escape from his justice or from his love. And so God's sovereignty is a, is a big feature of this covenant with Abraham. And in fact with all the covenants, but it's so important that we understand the Abrahamic covenant because it's, it's used so much in the New Testament, particularly by the Apostle Paul to explain the gospel. And there are two main ways that the sovereignty of God feature in this covenant with Abraham. And I want to go through two aspects of this tonight. The first one is God's sovereign election. I want to talk a bit about election. And also, secondly, this covenant is marked by God's sovereign so we have God's sovereign election and God's sovereign power running right through uh, this Abrahamic covenant. So first of all, sovereign election. In um, Reformed teaching, um, the doctrine of election states that God chooses whom he will save. And that God's choice precedes any consideration of our faith. That's really the big difference between the Reformation, the Reformed understanding of the Bible and many others, is that God, the, the person who does the choosing of being saved is not the sinner, it's God. God chooses. Um, and I don't want to get too far into election as a doctrine particularly tonight, but suffice it to say that the doctrine of election as understood within Reformation churches and creeds traces, the, as I say, the decision to save back to God himself in eternity past rather than to man. Now, in Arminianism, the first cause of salvation is in man. Man's decision to choose God. Now our understanding from the Bible is that the, the first cause is God's decision to choose us. It's a big difference. And um, we, you know, I'd like to get into that, but we, was, we perhaps will one day. But I just, I just want to mention it in passing, in a way, because what I want to focus on tonight is something of how the scriptures deal with that concept of election, which we believe as reformed believers, how, in, in, how the scriptures deal with election, an individual being chosen to be saved by God in eternity past, before the world began, how, how that relates to this covenant, in fact, to all, all, all covenants, but we're just going to focus on this covenant with Abraham. What is the relationship between election of an individual sinner and this Abrahamic covenant? Or to put it in a, in a, in a, in a different way, a simpler way, what is the relationship between election and covenant? Now that sounds complicated. But there's a reason why we need to try and understand it, and I'm going to make it simple as I can. It is fairly easy to understand if we stick to the scriptures. And I just want to say why I think it's important before getting into it. I think it gives us a realistic understanding of the relationship between national Israel and the church in the first place. And it gives us um, a realistic understanding of the relationship between the external, visible church and the invisible church of the truly elect, born-again people of God. Mm -hmm. And that's so important because people's faith has been destroyed when they've been in the church, which has let them down vicars run off with somebody and, and their faith is destroyed 
because all her faith has been in church. And I want to just to go just to go through tonight the relationship between election and covenant. Now there is a difference here of understanding between Presbyterian Reform tradition and Reform Baptist position. I'm not going to get too far into that. Um, I'll, I'll be up front from the beginning. I think on this particular issue, the Presbyterian understanding is more accurate. And I think I can convince you of that. But we'll, this is all about um, trying to understand, as I say, what is the is it, is it the case that every individual that was elected by God for individual salvation, is it the case that when they join a church, that means that every single person in that church is truly elect, truly born again? Now, there's a difference of opinion on that, which will become clear as we go through. Right, so this is a Bible study rather than a sermon, so I'm going to be relying on you to put your effort into this, looking at the scriptures, trying to keep up, because this, this isn't tonight, this isn't, I might be stretching you, this might be stretching you a bit too far, but I'm hoping that I will that you'll be able to keep up with this. And if, if I'm going over your head, just stop me. I'll try and say it in a different way. So, let's begin by saying that right from the beginning of the Bible, the what's called the, the Proto-Evangelium, which we studied, Genesis 3.15, God announced that there would be a, a separation, a great division in humanity. There would be a people of God and his Christ, he would be separate from the people of the, of the serpent. And we, we've talked about that many times. And we've, we've already studied, and we probably, without knowing it, covered maybe thousands of years. I don't know, it's very difficult to tell. We've covered certainly a long time in biblical history of how this separation of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman has worked out in history, in God's redemption history. Um, and it's clear, to me at least, that Genesis 3.15 is referring to individual election, to salvation. And that this continues through the generations up to and including and beyond, of course, the stage that we've reached so far. The stage <clears throat> um, that we've reached with Abraham and this covenant. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how... You know, what evidence is there? How does anyone know that this separation of the seed, of the promise of the woman, and separating them out, God's people, from the seed of the serpent, what, what, is, there to, what is there to say that any of that is happening? What proof is there that God is doing it? Um, we know from what we've studied so far that the evidence, the visible, external evidence that this work of redemption is happening um, is through the creation, the creation and preservation of a covenant community. That's the, I mean, that's the only external evidence we have that this Genesis 3.15 is happening. Is that God is creating, we've looked at this before, Communities of faith, communities of, 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 of separating people away from the world um, around very simple altars made of earth and stone, they would gather and they would worship Yahweh. And so God's election of individuals is manifested in the creation and preservation of, of a covenant community. And the history of those communities. We've looked at, we've studied in the genealogies, Genesis chapter 5 being one example. And so God, right from the beginning of the Bible, builds in this pattern of covenant, 
which leads to covenant communities and elections, individual election which took place even before the world began. And in this Abrahamic um, covenant, at the core of it, we know that we'll come on to this a bit later, at the very core of it, its deepest meaning, it's referring to um, individuals who are God chose and God elected before the world began coming to faith. But it also led to an Abrahamic community, a covenant community of God, ultimately Israel, the nation of Israel. So the question is, and this is where Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians differ to some extent, is if you um, take of course we never know this, but if we take theoretically um, the elect, the elect of those who are truly born again, those who are truly God's, um, and if we take them as a group, and then we look at the external covenant community, the church if you like, and the church in the Old Testament, the visible external communities of faith, who um, are worshipping at the altar, eventually leading to the nation of Israel. If we were to take, if we were to take both groups, or we was, if we were to say they were both a circle, and we put one on top of the other, would they match? Would everybody in the covenant community, in the external, visible community of God, would they truly be elect? Would they truly be? Our heart following God. And that is the question that we'll come on to see. The Apostle Paul talks about a great deal in Romans chapter 9. In other words, is sovereign election to personal salvation, does it always fit the boundaries? Of, of the covenant community or the church, the external visible church? Um, or is the circle of the covenant community broader than the circle of election in God's plan of redemption? As I say, my personal view is, and I think I can demonstrate this, is that they don't always match. That there are people that there are people who are not elect, who are not truly um, born again, who are not truly, um, as I say, elect, who are nonetheless externally, for all intents and purposes, saying that they are a Christian, saying that they are a visible member of the visible church, and yet they're not really, they're not really born again, they're not elect according to promise, but they are perhaps through being born into a, a Christian family, Jewish family in the Old Testament, they ended up being in the covenant community. Um, and this is to say, this is where there's a big difference between Baptists and Presbyterians. You know, how do we view the visible, I'm not talking about the, I'm not talking about the invisible, I'm talking about the visible church. Um, let's just carry on. This will become a little bit clearer, I think. Perhaps the most dramatic example of, of this sovereign election is when God separated mankind into two communities in the flood. We spoke to that as well. There was the ark community, um, which was a visible, in a way, a visible covenant community in the ark. And they were separated from the rest of the world. Um, but we soon find out, don't we, almost immediately, uh, that not all members of that ark community, of that covenant ark community, not all the members of it showed evidence of being elect. In fact, the very opposite. Um, they showed no evidence of being of the seed of the woman. It was quite clear that they were the seed of the serpent, yet they were in the ark. They, they, were, they did not perish with the rest of the world. 
They entered into the new world. Um, again, this will become clear as we go along. Just hold on to that thought. Not everyone in the ark was of the seed of the woman. Um, after the flood, this pattern of covenant and election continued. Both individual election to salvation and selection of the branch of the covenant people that would lead to Israel through Shem. And eventually from Israel through to the Messiah. And of course individual's election to salvation is signified in the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 and in the revelations made to Isaac and Jacob. But there's a big problem, and this is what I want to try and get us to now, and I'm hoping I'm, this is making sense. There's a big problem here, which, as we will see, the Apostle Paul addresses. It's this, that God promised Abraham and the patriarchs not only a great land, not only a great nation, not only a great name, but he promised that there would be a, that there would be a great blessing that would begin with Abraham, but extend to all the families of the earth. That was the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And God had promised, it even made an oath, which we studied last time, that he would be the keeper of these covenant promises. He, through a, through a, a, a covenant ratification ritual, Jehovah promised that he would keep this covenant. It wasn't Abraham promised to keep the covenant. It was God swore by himself that he would keep this covenant. And yet, here's the problem, and yet for the most part, the Israelite community as a whole, the external, visible people of God, as a whole, the genealogical outward form of the covenant had utterly failed to enter into the blessings of Abraham. And by the time of the New Testament, there was hardly any of them that entered into the covenant, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Well, so that raises the question that if the promise of the core the main point of the whole of the Abrahamic um, covenant was that, that, that Abraham would be a blessing to the whole world. And so here we are. The external covenant people that come from this covenant have not entered into it. They, 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 they have actually failed. They've actually rejected God for the most part. They certainly rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the Messiah the end point of the Abraham, Abrahamic promise. So by addressing, so the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 um, addresses this issue. Um, he, and, and by so doing, he provides in actual fact a wonderful explanation of the, of the character of the Abrahamic covenant is really what that's about. So let's turn to Romans 9 now, together. And to, to reiterate, why is, what, what, is the, what is going on here in Romans 9? Why was Romans 9 written? It's written to answer this problem that some would ask. How can it be said that God has kept the covenant with Abraham in the light of the fact that national Israel as a whole has not entered into the new covenant. Surely that proves that God has not kept the covenant. That is the question and the uh, objection which Romans 9 is really addressing. Now, I know this is hard, it's not simple stuff, but this is so important to understand. This will help us to understand really the position of Israel in relation to the church. People, people have trouble with Romans 9 and they have, a, they have 
problems with the whole issue of the role of Israel. And, and but before we get to Romans 5, there's just a couple of things we need to understand about um, the meaning and the fulfilment of the Abrahamic covenant, at least in how Paul would have had some presuppositions about it. So, what I'm about to say is not, it's not from the Bible, this is trying to condense what the Bible is saying about this Abrahamic covenant. And this, I think, would have been in Paul, this is the way Paul would have approached this when he wrote Romans 9. So if we can imagine putting the, this covenant, um, just imagine putting the Abrahamic covenant under a microscope, pretend you're in a laboratory, you put a microscope, you put the covenant, this covenant under the microscope, what you would see would be an inner core and an outer core. There would be two structures, two levels of meaning and fulfilment. And I'll explain what I mean. Or, or if, you, if it's simpler to think of it, there's a, there's a temporary phase of meaning in this covenant, and there's a permanent phase of meaning. And the temporary and the permanent phase of meaning in this covenant, it's not like one follows another, the temporary um, comes first and then the permanent. They, they both start off together, they run in parallel. The Abrahamic covenant has a temporary meaning and a permanent meaning and they go alongside each other right from the beginning. So to understand Romans 9, we, we need to see that the first level of the Abrahamic covenant was the typological kingdom of Israel under Moses in the Old Testament. And that was a temporary level. A temporary level of fulfilment. And this is this is clear from, from, from Genesis 12, isn't it? There's a mixture of very physical, earthly promises with a great spiritual promise. So on this this um, inner level, this first level, if you like, the temporary level, we know that the Israelites were the promised seed. The, Jew, the Jewish people were the promised seed, numerous as the sand on the seashore. And we know from 1 Kings 4, 20 and 21, that their entrance into Canaan, the promised land, was seen as a fulfillment of the land promise made to Abraham. As Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt, the, the boundaries of what the promise was. That fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant was a temporary. Temporary level fulfillment. But the promises in the Abrahamic covenant have a second level or a permanent meaning and fulfillment. The spiritual aspects applied to the elect, the remnant, the true seed of the woman, which is realized right from the beginning also through the patriarchal period and then in the Old Covenant, the rest of the Old Testament. And of course, under the new covenant, and it comes to fulfilment in the latter days, in these days in which we live. That is to say, righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So now we're coming to Romans nine. In Romans nine, Paul is, as I say, is dealing with this question um, of Did God? Is it? Is it? true to say that God has kept the Abrahamic covenant. And he begins, let's look at it now, looking at Romans 9. We can see that, that he starts off in the first few verses dealing with this temporary level meaning of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, verse 4 he says, he talks about the adoption, the glory, and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. Well, not, 
long But he's talking there about Israel as a nation. It's genealogical Israel and the privileges that the Israelites had. But then in, if you go on then to verses 6 to 8, Paul begins to answer the issue of whether God has been a faithful keeper of the Abrahamic promises by arguing that not all the natural descendants of Abraham, which come from the nation Israel, were the, were the intended seed of promise. So let's read that. It says, Not as though the word of God hath taken that effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now, I hope that's now clicking with you, what I'm trying to get at, probably not very well, is that Paul is defending God here by saying, Yes, God did keep the Abrahamic covenant because Abraham's promised seed in the permanent spiritual level of the covenant um, according to Paul is Christ and those who are in Christ by faith. Mm. Galatians 3 verse 16 says now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as many, but as of one, unto thy seed, which is Christ. And then in verse 29 of Galatians 3 it says, And if ye be Christ's, then, ye, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. And then... Um, he teaches, uh, I think it's in Romans, um, uh, Romans 9, 24, he goes on to explain how this seed now includes believers from among the Gentiles, even us who he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so, to, if I can summarise all of that, what Paul is saying, in, his, in a way it is, Defense of God's covenant keeping of the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying this believing seed of Abraham was only ever, was only ever a small minority, a remnant within Israel, was only ever a small remnant from the within the covenant people of God in its visible form. I mean other the alternative is that all, all the Israelites that we read of in the Old Testament were truly born again. Well, yeah. it doesn't it didn't look like that, does it? No. So, and, and Paul goes on in Romans eleven. Romans eleven is very interesting in this. So, Romans eleven five. Even so, at this present time, also. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, going back to what I was trying to say about does, does, does the circle of election and the circle of the external visible people of God fit? If you put one circle on top of another, they don't, do they? They don't fit. There are people in the external visible church who are not truly born again. And Paul is arguing that in terms of Israel, National Israel, which was the covenant community, the Abrahamic covenant community in its visible form, there was only ever a small minority of them that were elect according to salvation. Mm -hmm. So I hope that makes sense. Romans 11 again is interesting because it, it, it starts by, um, let's look at Romans 11. It starts by posing the question, Hath God cast away his people? God forbid, Paul says, For I also am an Israelite, an Israelite 
of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, Paul's proof that Israel had not been cast away is couched in terms of a reference to the 7,000 men who did not bow the knee to Baal in the time of Elijah. To me, that's very interesting. He's saying, Israel, didn't, Israel has not failed. God's promise to Israel has not failed. How can I prove that God's promise to Israel has not failed? It's because of the remnant. It's because of the truly elect, the truly born again, to, to those very small number of people that did not bow the knee to Baal. And it's because of them, it's because of them, that God, we can say that God has not cast away his people. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, what then he says in 11.7 what then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for but the election hath obtained it and that's so interesting isn't it what then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for but the election hath obtained it and the rest were blinded vast majority of the visible, external community, covenant community of God were blinded. Um, but the election hath obtained, the, the truly elect hath obtained the Abrahamic promise. So that's what I'm trying to explain to these two, this um, two-level structure, because all of Israel, unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Jews, they all entered into the land. Some of, some of the Temporary aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, all of all Israel entered into, all, all came into that aspect of the promise. But not all of them, in fact, a small minority of them entered into the core of the Abrahamic covenant, which was justification by faith. That's anachronistic using that language in the old, but that's what it amounted to. It was a real relationship with God. So to sum up Paul's um, Romans 9 argument, he says, no, God has not failed to keep the covenant. God's promise has not failed due to the falling away in unbelief of the majority of national Israel because the promise was not intended for them in the first place. Only the spiritual seed of Abraham was, the intent, was in, intended as the promised seed at this second level meaning, this permanent level meaning of the Abrahamic covenant, Christ's kingdom in the spirit. At that level, the deep, in the way, I put it the wrong way around, right, but at the deepest core of the meaning of the Abrahamic covenant, it was never intended, it was always intended for all of God's electors, it was intended to apply to all those who God chose in eternity past before the world was ever made. It says, on the contrary, Paul argues, the seed actually promised to Abraham at the permanent level was the, are the true children of God, the elect heirs, and the promise has been fulfilled. Fulfilled. Romans 9, 8. That is, they which are the children of, of the flesh He's talking about Israel, don't forget, the national Israel. Mm. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now we need to understand this because there are many Christians today give me the impression they'd rather be a, um, an ethnic Jew than be a Christian. Mm. Now, read, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Mm. It's so important that we get this right. So what does all this amount to um, for us? And I'm sorry I've stretched you. This is not easy stuff. I think we can just pause and just say with complete wonder and amazement and admiration
for God that in, in his sovereign electing purposes and power the Lord has ensured an unbroken, continuous, elect remnant albeit from within the total covenant community right from the Garden of Eden, right through generation after generation, genealogy after genealogy there's this true elect people of God have always been there. They've been within the visible covenant community. Not, not all of them would have been truly elect, but that is the external evidence that this promise of Genesis 3.15 is taking place. Yes, there is this separation of the seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent. Sovereign individual election defines the intention of the covenant promises at the fullest meaning of this covenant. And that is, that is Paul's defense of God's covenant keeping. Romans 9, 6. Not as though, this is important, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. God's word is true. God has kept the promise because not all Israel, in the Abrahamic covenant sense, were, were Israel anyway. There's, there's a way of being an Israelite, which is being an Israelite indeed. There's a way of being an Israelite, which is just being an external Jew. And not all who were of, of covenant status were children of the promise, chosen according to the purpose of grace. Now why has this, why has this got any practical application? It's this, it's, this is a very serious warning to us. It's a serious warning to the churchgoer. It's a serious warning to the baptised professor. Now I don't care if it's infant baptised or adult baptised, we disagree about that. I think it's the Baptist um, situation is no better than the Presbyterian that there is false assurance and security taken in baptisms. Whether you're baptised as a putting reliance on a, on a baptism as a child or as a baby or a baptism taken when you weren't really a true born again believer. And there are millions of people baptised around the world as adults. Went through, we've gone through believers' baptism and they're as lost as anything. So we're no better off than the infant baptized, infant baptizers, in my opinion. See, the eternal promise committed to Abraham was not um, was not defined or boundaried as I say, by the visible community it created, but rather it finds its definition in the eternal commitment of the Father made to the Son in the covenant of redemption before the world was ever made. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. And we can say, not all church which are of church, not everyone in church is of real invisible church truly elect people of God. And as I say, there's a difference there, different theologies. I think it helps an awful lot to accept that fact. It seems obvious to me that as you read Hebrews, for example, that it seems obvious that you can be part of the covenant people of God and even get great benefit from being part of the covenant people of God and yet not be truly born again. It makes no sense. Well, the, the, either that is the case, or the only other way of reading Hebrews is that you can lose your salvation once you become a Christian, one or the other, and take a choice. Mm -hmm. But the reform teaching is that once you're saved, you're, you're always saved. It's, it's, uh, you're born again. God doesn't decreate you, that doesn't make you back to where you are. It's impossible. No, they were in danger of falling away, of being apostate, because although they were 
covenantally, externally, visibly, churchgoers. They, they probably heard the sermons. They had the sacrament. But they weren't elect. They weren't born again. And so there's a great danger in, in defining visible church in exactly the, te the same terms as invisible church. And so that's, that's, a, that's a controversial thing to say. Um, Paul says this in Romans 2. Let's keep an eye on the time. Romans 2, uh, verse 28 and 29. Again, this is, a, this is a proof text in a way. It says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So important to understand that. Let's turn to Matthew 13, verse 24. Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself, I think, covers this. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Um, Matthew 13, 24, Jesus speaking. Another parable put you forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in, the, in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, an enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. This is it, verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this gives us a context to understand how people fall away from the faith. People that were in that are in church, part of us. You sing the same hymns, listen to the same sermons, speak the same language, they're baptized, they may even um, Busy, and yet mysteriously to us, they, they 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 wander away, give up their faith, apostatize. I think it helps us with that. I think it helps us not to rely on any one man, two men. People's faith is destroyed when a when a when a minister or pastor or preacher. And it's adultery, whatever it might be, and that the whole life is destroyed because of all their faith in the man, in a position. You see, church is really important to us, but but you know, our, our, the basis of our faith is not churches; it's God's election of us. We're in the palm of His hand. Some people have had a terrible time in church. Um, I think this helps us be realistic about church. We need church to be as good as it can be, but our faith doesn't stand or fall by it. Our faith is in Christ. Our faith is not in each other or in any, any preachers. And I think, because um, I've run out of time and haven't got very far at all, it helps us, well, it doesn't help us, it, it warns us tonight, I think. Don't take any. Um, don't deceive yourself 
or put weight in the fact that you are part of a visible local church and use that as evidence that you are truly elect or truly saved. Um, that is not the evidence. You need to be in church. You're, you're part of church. You're certainly baptised by the Spirit into the invisible church and you need to be baptised in water into the visible church. But Jesus said there will be tears and let both grow together. We won't always know. And you need to wait until the end of the harvest. And, and then there will be the separation. Not all Israel uh, are Israel. Not all. Um, not every churchgoer is truly born again. And so. I think the Abrahamic covenant in this aspect, I haven't gone very far, in this aspect of this characteristic of sovereign election um, and how that relates to the community, the, um, the covenant community, and how that worked out in the Old Testament, and how Paul takes that up and justifies it or defends God's covenant keeping through the explanation of. How this relationship between covenant and election works. I hope that that has given us an insight into just one further aspect of this Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant. I want to say a bit more about um, election next time because I only got about halfway through, which is typical of me. Um, and there's quite a bit more I want to say. Amen. Amen.